Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm David Gurra in for Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Thousands gathered at a vigil in Uvalde, Texas, to mourn and to pray on Wednesday. That small town is the site of the deadliest school shooting in a decade. Nineteen children and two teachers were killed at Robb Elementary School on Tuesday. It's still unclear how or why the gunman was able to spend up to an hour in the classroom before he was killed by police, but we'll tell you what we do know. Meanwhile, senators gathered on Thursday for another round of gun control talks, but then they left D.C. for a 10-day recess. So will any of that talk lead to action? Anita Kumar is a senior editor at Politico, overseeing standards and ethics. Jeff Mason covers the White House for Reuters. And Naftali Ben-David is the Washington Post White House editor. Thanks to all of you for being here today. Appreciate it. Naftali, let me start with you, and, and let's begin with, uh, with Uvalde. Uh, the timeline here is under such question now, based on what we learned immediately after the shooting and what we've heard since from, from law enforcement. Walk us through what we know so far, what, what started around 1130 uh, local time on that morning and, and ended at about 106 p.m. Well, a couple of things have come into particular dispute as authorities have changed their story. I mean, originally, the story was that when the gunman arrived, he was confronted by a police officer. In some accounts, you know, shots were exchanged. Then he worked his way into the school and was repeatedly confronted by police. The thing that's really coming into question is how much police and law enforcement really confronted the gunman, both when he was about to enter the school and once he was inside. Um, It should be said that in previous shootings as well, this issue has come up, whether law enforcement officers on the scene really reacted in the most appropriate way. And I think that this is uh, particularly an interesting subject as we debate, um, you know, for example, whether it would make sense to have more officers at schools. There's a lot of talk in the aftermath of this, uh, of hardening schools as targets and so forth. Um, And I think this uh, brings into question some of those ideas. Anita, let me ask you just about what we've learned, uh, what was happening outside the school as all of this transpired. Video from outside the school shows parents urging police to enter the building while the shooter is inside. One parent ended up on the ground tackled by officers. Um, At a press conference yesterday, Regional Director for the Texas Department of Public Safety, Victor Estalone, defended law enforcement's handling of that incident. They don't make entry initially because of the gunfire they're receiving. We have officers calling for additional resources. Everybody that's in the area tactical teams. We need equipment. We need specialty equipment. We need body armor. We need precision riflemen, negotiators. So during that time that they're making those calls to bring in help to solve this problem and stop it immediately, they're also evacuating personnel. I say personnel, students, teachers. There's a lot going on. A lot complex situation. They're measuring. They're measuring. A complex situation. Uh, Anita Kumar, how does this factor into sort of what we're piecing together at this point? You had Congressman Joaquin Castro of San Antonio, Texas, writing a letter to the FBI demanding a thorough investigation of this and accounting of what happened. The FBI uh, has acknowledged receiving that letter. Um, 
help us understand sort of where things go from here uh, as as the days follow. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that things have changed multiple times. So we might hear something else, you know, in the coming hours and coming days. I think the one thing that people keep going back to is that since the Columbine shooting massacre, which was, you know, 1999, there have been there has been training across the country that officers should pursue shooters inside buildings, schools, but also other buildings, and they shouldn't be waiting for specialized backup. And essentially what they're saying now is that they were waiting for that backup. You mentioned that this hour lapsed, um, you know, what has been unbelievable to hear is that these parents were outside, uh, you know, hearing gunshots and saying that they themselves wanted to go in, that they were armed, that they could go in. And then the police, of course, as you mentioned, not letting them do that. So I think there's going to be a lot uh, of investigation into that. It's something that we heard um, in the Parkland shooting in Florida also, that there was an investigation there and and was later learned that police didn't go in and try to go in. Uh, some time had passed and actually, uh, you know, one of the officers there is, is uh, you know, was under investigation, facing charges, uh, fired. Um, and so I think we're going to hear more about this, whether they did what they were supposed to do uh, by their training. And they had been trained. The news is out now that they had been trained uh, for some for, you know, an incident like this. Jeff Mason, just sort of stepping back a bit here, uh, I wonder what this does or how this advances the debate over the usefulness of armed guards and police uh, in schools. It's one that's been been going on for, for a very long while. Um, again, stepping back sort of in, in, in that context, how does this change that conversation? Well, it certainly brings a highlight to that conversation, David, along with all of the other policy aspects that Washington and, and local lawmakers uh, around the country are considering, will, will be considering in light of the the increase in the continued number of mass shootings that, that occur in this country, specifically on schools and, and guards. I mean, that's just been one, um, one piece, I guess, of the overall policy discussion. And there are people on the, on the political right who have also come away from shootings like this and argued that teachers need to be armed. There are people on the left and gun safety advocates who say that is, that's just creating um, more issues and more safety uh, problems. So it, it comes down to, unfortunately, as a lot of things do with regard to guns in the United States, um, a pretty strict political divide on what the answer is and how to address the problem. That's Jeff Mason of Reuters. Neftali Ben-David is the White House editor for The Washington Post, and Politico's Anita Kumar is with us as well. Uh, one of the children killed Tuesday was 10-year-old Amari Garza. She was the sweetest little girl who did nothing wrong. She listened to her mom and dad. She always brushed her teeth. She, did, she was creative. She made things for us. She never got in trouble in school. Like, I just want to know what she did to be a victim. <laughs> that was her father, Angel Garza, speaking with Anderson Cooper on CNN. She was one of 19 children murdered in Uvalde. Naftali, I want to turn to you, and uh, your organization, The Washington Post, has compiled biographies of, of these victims, as so many others have, and uh, it begins with a really remarkable description of who was killed. I'll, I'll read from that if, if I can. The students were 9, 10, or 11 years old, the teachers in their 40s. Some children had just made the honor roll. Two of the girls played basketball together on a team called the Spurs. One boy loved soccer and dancing with his brothers at home. The veteran teachers were long accustomed to teaming up in their fourth-grade classroom. One was an expert in special education and remembered for her dedication to a student with Down syndrome. 
What do we know uh, of who was killed in this attack? Well, this was a very small town, and so one of the things that we know is there's this incredible series of connections between the various victims and between their families and between the teachers and the officers, um, and so it was a very intimate, in a way, tragedy. Um, and uh, you know, this was a, a community that had a, a lot of Latino residents as well. It was it was a rural, conservative Texas area. Uh, you know, in Parkland, it was an upscale Florida area, and Sandy Hook, it was a Connecticut, more liberal area. I mean, I. I think if there's a if there's a lesson here, it's that any kind of community, any place in the United States is subject to these kinds of things. I mean, hearing about children being slaughtered is sort of beyond unspeakable. And it's something that now I think everybody recognizes can happen anywhere in the United States. And a lot of people in the aftermath of this we're really bemoaning the fact that as a country, you know, we, we, we tend to be very proud of what we can accomplish, but we seem to be completely unable to stop the slaughter of our own children repeatedly. And of course, you know, people have different answers as to why, but it's really a remarkable thing. And you've seen President Biden's rhetoric. He tends to be sort of a, a sunny, optimistic, you know, that's, that's his style of politics. But in the aftermath of this and the shooting in Buffalo, which, by the way, we shouldn't forget, was just a little more than a week before that, you you know, his rhetoric was much more, what is wrong with us? When are we going to realize that we have a problem? And I think that's a sentiment that's increasingly widespread, uh, both in the, in the political realm, but also just in the country in general. Jeff Mason, pick up on that, if you would, what Naftali is saying there about the, the president's response to this. What have you heard from the president? And, and you've covered several administrations. Sort of how does it differ from what we've seen in the past? Well, it's, it's, it's not actually that different insofar as the grief is, is it's just indescribable when, um, obviously, for the parents and for the community and for the families of those victims. Um, but take it back to the, the political, um, back a step or two to the political uh, arena. I remember when President Obama um, reacted to the killing of the, the Newtown, the, the children in Newtown, and he described it as the worst day of his presidency, and he gave one of the most emotional speeches that I can remember in eight years of covering him um, at, when, when he traveled there. Um, I think that same kind of emotion was reflected in uh, President Biden's remarks this week, and anger. And maybe that's a little bit different, the fact that President Biden, um, from the Roosevelt Room in the White House, um, in his remarks, went straight to the politics of it and said, when are we going to take on the gun lobby? And I think that is driving the conversation, certainly on the Democratic side, um, in the aftermath of this horrific shooting. Pat writes in with a comment, No more our hearts go out to the families. We have failed. The American citizens have failed one another. We must do our job and see to it that the representatives we've elected are protecting our citizenry. This is unacceptable. We heard from Richard as well, an AR-15 owner in Virginia. He says, America is awash in guns and tomorrow it will be worse. If you want to stop the slaughter now, stop talking about controlling guns and start talking about controlling access to ammo. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember to join future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. 
BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get back to rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. A bipartisan group of lawmakers led by Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut is trying to find some middle ground on gun control. Why do you spend all this time running for the United States Senate? Why do you go through all the hassle of getting this job, of putting yourself in a position of authority, if your answer is that as this slaughter increases, as our kids run for their lives, we do nothing? What are we doing? Why are you here? That was Senator Chris Murphy on Tuesday speaking on the Senate floor. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he plans to bring gun safety legislation to the floor even if it looks like talks have stalled. But considering the Senate just left for a 10-day recess, it could be a while before we see any action. Anita Kumar, let me turn to you first and ask what specific legislation uh, is in the works. This week there was a meeting uh, of a group of bipartisan senators. What did we learn coming out of that meeting? Yeah, I think what we learned is that this group is looking at sort of smaller incremental steps you know, after Sandy Hook, after some of these other shootings, we've we've seen them say that they wanted to go big, right? They they had a lot of things. So what they what we've heard from Republicans and Democrats, he, even Chris Murphy, who you just played, mm-hmm. is that they're willing to to do whatever at this point. And so some of the things they've talked about are ways to incentivize states to pass these so called red flag laws. Those are the laws that are looking at taking firearms away from potentially dangerous people and, of course, expanding the criminal background check for gun buyers. That's something that that always comes up, and they've always sort of had a problem with that because uh, there's a difference of opinion, really, on how much to expand that. So those are a couple things that they're looking at with a realization that they're not going to be able to pass some of these things that they have looked at in the past. Jeff Mason, what does it mean or what does it say uh, that Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, is is among the senators who are discussing this? Uh, and I gather from from reporting I've read that it was at the behest of or the request of the Senate Minority Leader, of Mitch McConnell. Yes. Um, it says there's a chance. It says that Republicans are engaging, at least some Republicans are engaging. Susan Collins is also uh, among the moderate Republican senators who are who are holding discussions on this issue. And the reality, David, of lawmaking in in Washington is the the Senate has 100 members. It's currently split 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans, and you need 60 votes to be able to pass a law without um, to, to overcome a filibuster. So that math means you have to have Republicans on board. And to, to, to get to your question, the fact that a few Republicans at Mitch McConnell's direction are at least engaging in discussions means that they have an opportunity to agree on something. And Anita laid it out well that the red flag laws are um, one area where they seem to be coalescing. That said, uh, if you look at the history of this over the last decade, including after Sandy Hook, which we were just discussing, mm-hmm. um, there seemed like there was a lot of momentum, and then it didn't it didn't get very far. But I will add to that, having spoken to um, advocacy groups this week, that they they want there not to be a a sense of this is never going to happen, um, because even despite the history. They they feel that if you go into it thinking there's no way that something is going to get done, then that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
Naftali, what about the symbolism, or is it something more than that, that the Senate did go on recess, did embark on this Memorial Day recess? They're not there hammering this out now. I, th- I think that the, the kind of positive gloss on that is that conversations continue over the course of, of the recess. But um, wh- what does it say that the Senate is going home for a break right now uh, in this moment of crisis? I mean, it certainly doesn't signal a sense of urgency. I mean, the, the, the history of these things, and not just, by the way, uh, gun shootings, but all kinds of dramatic events, is that there's a flurry of activity. Uh, everybody says, maybe this time will be different. McConnell deputizes somebody and maybe Schumer does and it really looks like maybe something might happen. But then in a couple of weeks, the country's attention moves on. The intensity of the emotions, you know, fades a little bit and nothing happens. Uh, the, a very similar thing happened with the idea of a police reform law, for example, where McConnell asked Senator Tim Scott to engage with some Democrats and it looked kind of hopeful there for a little bit and then it went away. But I think with guns, there's a particular issue here, which is this really, in, in my view, has moved beyond being a policy debate. It's a cultural war, and culture wars don't lend themselves to policy solutions. And I think that's really what's at root here. I mean, it's a, you know, for, for a lot of conservatives, owning a gun is an affirmative good. It's not a question of defending the rights of people who choose to have guns. They encourage people to go out and buy guns. They celebrate them. It's a cultural signifier. People put it in ads to show that, you know, you're a certain kind of real American and you're not a woke elitist liberal. And so when that's the landscape on which we're operating, I think the idea of some kind of a policy solution is very remote. I mean, is that to say that there won't be something like red flag laws? I mean, maybe there will. But any sort of a farther reaching uh, or more comprehensive solution, I think it's just not in the arena of policy or legislation anymore, it seems. Anita, Naftali is describing this as, as a part of the cultural landscape in, in the country broadly. Let's, let's zoom in a bit here on Texas and the degree to which it's a signifier uh, in that state specifically. This is a state that's been loosening its gun laws for, for years, uh, within the last few months even. What, what's changed there? And, and speak to the resonance of this, again, as Naftali said, a cultural issue uh, in that state in particular. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. It's, it's uh, you know, a lot of people that live there or have grown up there say that it's part of uh, part of a way of life, you know, that they learn to hunt, they learn to shoot. Not everyone, of course, but it is, as you've indicated, a, a conservative area where this is a part of the way of life. I mean, I, I know we'll get more to this, but the NRA convention is right there in, in Texas um, happening today. It is uh, you know, it is a place where even people that may support some changes feel like, you know, guns are part of the way they grew up. Firearms are. And so there is a real disconnect there on what what should be done. I mean, obviously, the, the issue in Congress is that they need 60 votes and uh, on the Democratic side, and they don't have nearly that. And, and that's an issue. But it is across the country, a real disagreement, a real philosophical disagreement, or as we just indicated, a cultural one, where they just can't sort of see the other side, right? There is uh, just a fundamental disagreement where it's almost as if some people can't see the other perspective. And so what is the solution when when that's the case? Jeff Mason, part of the, the, the sparing, the dispiriting rhythm that happens with these tragedies is this conversation about when it's all right or acceptable to talk about the politics of this or what the policy response uh, might be. And I'll bring up an example this week. There was a press conference in Texas on the heels of this shooting, uh, and gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke confronted incumbent Governor Greg Abbott about his history with firearms legislation. Excuse me. S- sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Hey. S- sit down and don't play this. The next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No, he needs to get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk to this over. This is totally predictable. Sir, you're out of line. 
Jeff Mason, a bit of a work escorted out shortly after that exchange took place. I think this stands as a signal moment in the aftermath of, of this tragedy. What can we learn from it? What does it say again about the uh, the, the rhythms of what happens after, after a tragedy like this? Yeah, I, I think the way you said that, David, is spot on. It, a couple things. It says, number one, that there is a tension between two key freedoms protected by the Constitution, the First and Second Amendment. The First Amendment protects the right to free speech. Uh, the Second Amendment pr- protects the right to bear arms. And Beto O'Rourke uh, going to that press conference and sp- speaking up absolutely drew criticism from people who thought it was the wrong time. On the other hand, the people who feel like this country has not done nearly enough to protect uh, innocent victims like the children in Texas think this is, this is absolutely the time, if it's a political stunt or not, to speak up and to challenge the people uh, on the other side who hold differing opinions. I, there was criticism of President Biden for, for going straight into discussing the gun lobby from the White House a couple nights ago. That gets down to that cultural and political divide that all three of us on the panel have discussed today. I mean, the, the bottom line is on the side of the people who believe more needs to be done. They want that discussion, and they want that discussion at the highest level. And from people who are more on the side of protecting the right to bear arms, they feel that it's disrespectful to bring up the politics now. Ms. Talib and David, what, what shakes us from complacency or acceptance of the normalcy of this or regularity of it? There's a comment that we have from Robert in Michigan. He asks, will a parent have to do what Emmett Till's mother did and have an open casket funeral for a child torn apart by an AR-15 to move our politicians to action? Uh, I've seen others make a similar point. Uh, a lot of people uh, commented on that moment after the shooting when families were gathering at that reunification center and word got out that they were uh, taking DNA swabs to uh, identify children who were unidentifiable physically. Uh, what, what's it going to take, do you think, to, to shake us from this? I mean, to be honest, I, don't, I haven't seen any evidence that anything will shake us from it. A lot of people felt after Sandy Hook, which is about 10 years ago, and 20 kindergartners were slaughtered, plus six adults, that surely, surely after that, things can't go on as, as, uh, you know, as they have been. And in fact, Vice President Biden at the time was assigned by then-President Obama to, to lead a push for, uh, for gun control. And it, it, it failed. I mean, nothing happened. And so, and so we've seen kids slaughtered before. We've seen people slaughtered in church. We've seen things happen, uh, you know, more recently uh, where a white supremacist uh, t- took aim at shoppers in a grocery store. I mean, if you ask people who support gun rights, they say that, of course, they want to do things. The things they want to do have to do with mental health. They have to do with hardening schools as targets, that kind of thing. They just don't accept the argument that gun control is a solution. And so just given our history, um, you know, which is unique, I think, pretty much among um, industrialized countries um, of these mass shootings. But given the history of this, I I, I don't know. I don't see any evidence that anything's going to shake us out of it. Mm. As Anita mentioned, the NRA convention taking place this weekend in Houston, the president, first lady traveling to Texas uh, over the weekend uh, as well. Um, I'd like to move to politics, state politics as well. This was a week in which we had primary elections across the country. Georgia held primaries for governor, secretary of state, and the U.S. Senate on Tuesday and turned out to be a good day for incumbents. Team Kemp has always been built from the grassroots up, and this race has been no different. 
You have honored us with your time, with your efforts, and with your resources, but most importantly, with your belief in our campaign. And we cannot thank you guys enough. God bless you all. Thank you. That was Republican Governor Brian Kemp, who beat the Trump-backed former Senator David Perdue, the Republican incumbent for Secretary of State. Brad Raffensperger also beat his Trump-backed opponent, current Congressman Jody Heiss. Tonight is a come-from-behind victory celebration. You know, I was writing this little talk out, my little short speech here, but a year ago, the political pundits on both sides of the aisle said I had a 10% support, and it was hopeless. Raffensperger won with 52% of the vote, and as for the Senate race, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker will face off in the general election. Anita Kumar, what were the big takeaways for you from what we saw uh, in Georgia on Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, Georgia was really interesting for the for the two that you mentioned, you know, the governor's race and, and then uh, Mr. Raffensperger. But I guess, you know, we keep looking at these races across the country and sort of looking at Donald Trump's support. And he's had a mixed he said mixed results in the in the primary so far. In this one, though, of course, as you mentioned, both those in those two particular races, uh, you know, his his candidate lost, and so I guess you know we're seeing either that support isn't as strong there in that key state of Georgia, or it's that people are uh, even Republicans sort of tiring of talking about 2020. It may they still be that they support Donald Trump, they like Donald Trump, but they don't want to relitigate that 2020 election anymore. Uh, you know, they could still support him and his policies, but Donald Trump has continued to talk about 2020, talk about how, falsely say that he won, uh, talk about election, you know, so-called election fraud. It could be that that issue is just not resonating. It certainly doesn't seem to be resonating in Georgia with Republicans and the Secretary of State and, and the governor's races. So uh, you saw both of those men win pretty handily. It wasn't even close. And so it is a lesson, you know, for Republicans going forward. Is this something they want to talk about? Uh, Georgia, of course, as you know, has become such a key state and will be a key state uh, in November. So they have to be looking at this and wondering what lessons they need to be learning. Jeff Mason, uh, of course, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger made headlines for being on that infamous phone call when President Trump asked him to overturn the election results. He refused to do that. Um, His chances this time last year were, were seen as slim. How did he win over conservative voters? He, he was somebody who very proudly said that during the course of this campaign, I, I think he claimed to have, to have logged maybe tens of thousands of miles uh, on his truck crisscrossing the state. Yeah, well, that just goes to show you that retail politics, um, is, it's a door-to-door endeavor, and I think that, that clearly paid off for Raffensperger. It's fascinating, uh, the fact that he and Kemp uh, won. Kemp, of course, won by a huge margin against the former uh, senator who uh, President, former President Trump endorsed. Raffensperger's margins were a little bit uh, tighter, but he won. And um, I, I, think, I think it comes down to, to retail politics. And it also, again, kind of reflects the, the political dynamics in Georgia that, um, that show that Trump, at least in that state, doesn't have the hold that he does on other states or at least other Republican Party and, and, and races in, in other states around the country. Natalia, looking ahead to the general election, to this rematch between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, the Democrat, that was an extremely close contest in, in 2018. Uh, how do you, do you see this rematch playing out uh, in light of what's happened, in light of those primary results from earlier this week? What does it tell you about the, the electorate? Of course, just a, a slice of it, the Republican side, but what does it say to you about what we're looking ahead to in November? 
Well, it's definitely going to be one of the marquee races, I think, this November. And you'd have to say that the Republicans have a little bit more of an advantage. I mean, they're more motivated this time around than they were last time around. And that gives Kemp a little bit of an edge. On the other hand, Abrams has a lot more of an organization than she used to have. So I think uh, how this plays out, uh, it'll give a springboard to national office to whichever one of those two, Stacey Abrams or Brian Kemp, manages to prevail. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or to just let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the News Roundup. This week, a new study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found one in five people who contracted COVID-19 also experienced long COVID symptoms. For the elderly, that number rises to one in four. Long COVID can linger for months or even years after the initial infection. Symptoms can include respiratory problems, neurological conditions, issues with blood circulation, and more. Diving into this issue is part of the next installment of our series, Vaccination Nation. If you're struggling with long COVID or are close with somebody who is, what's your story? Call us, 855-236-1212. Have you struggled to get a doctor to take you seriously or to get the help you need? want to hear from you, 855-236-1A1A, or you can use our app, 1A Vox Pop, and we'll include some of your responses as part of next week's program. My guests today are Politico's Anita Kumar, Jeff Mason of Reuters, and Aftali Ben-David of The Washington Post. And one more question to you, Jeff, just on the primaries that we saw this week. Uh, someone with whom you used to interact at the White House, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, running for uh, governor uh, in her home state to succeed Asa Hutchinson, who's been governor term limited. Uh, of course, the seat once held by her father uh, as well. She she raked in, I think, $14 million in, in campaign cash. What does that primary tell you about um, that race in the state of Arkansas? Uh, well, it tells me that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is very likely to be the next governor of Arkansas. And you're absolutely right. She had uh, a lot of money, $14 million, and a lot of support from Republicans, starting with her former boss, President Trump, who uh, gave her an early endorsement. And that helped her eventually clear the field uh, with from some other actually very high-profile uh, names in Arkansas who ended up uh, stepping away as as her um, star really rose. So she is would be a historic win if she if she does win the election. Uh, she's thirty nine years old and she'd be the first woman uh, to to be governor in Arkansas. As far as I know, she'd also be the first former White House press secretary, <laughs> which is quite interesting to see that as having been a launching point for her. She's going to face Chris Jones, who is uh, an MIT-educated nuclear scientist, I believe, uh, and an mm-hmm. ordained minister as well. Uh, let's move to Oklahoma, if we could, to talk a bit about a new abortion law that was passed and signed into law in that state. Uh, Nita Kumar, I'll turn to you on this point. Republican Governor Kevin Stitt signing that into law, banning nearly all abortions after fertilization. I believe this was passed a little over a week ago and signed into law on Wednesday of this week and is now regarded as uh, the most restrictive abortion ban in the country. What does it do exactly? Yeah, it's really interesting because generally we there's sort of a, a lag, right? Someone signs into a bill into law and then there, it, it goes into effect later, but this takes effect immediately. Um, the law does make some exceptions in cases where an abortion is necessary to save the life of the mother or in cases of rape or incest, but it relies on civilian enforcement to get around sort of the constitutional right to abortion that's enshrined in Roe v. Wade, which of course we don't know the status of what's going to happen with that, but this was designed to get around you know the existing law of the land at this point. It says state officials can't bring charges, but it requires private citizens. So people could sue abortion providers or anyone who aids 
uh, in someone getting an abortion, which could be a friend, it could be an Uber driver, someone who's driving someone to a clinic, um, and then you know successful lawsuits in civil court yield at least you know ten thousand dollars in damages. So if if people remember this, uh, this is sort of the way, uh, sort of a model we saw with a Texas law that allowed individuals to sue abortion providers, and this is taking sort of another page from that particular law that's been on the books. Natalia Ben David, how much should we look at this in in isolation as a law? Yes, inspired by what what happened in Texas, um, but is it something unto itself, or or is this something that that other states uh, will be looking at? Oh, I don't think we should look at it in isolation at all. I mean, it, it is seen as the most far-reaching, but there's been this spate of laws that have been enacted in anticipation of the Supreme Court probably next month uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. And so all these states want to have laws in place for that. But I think that when that happens, there's going to be a whole series of pretty interesting questions. Um, you know, how, you know, for example, how do you determine whether something uh, was caused by uh, rape or incest? I believe that the o- Oklahoma law requires that incident to have been reported to police at the time. But as we know, there's all kinds of reasons people don't report rape or incest at the time. You know, if the mother's life is in danger, well, who gets to decide that? I mean, is that the, uh, the you know, the woman's personal physician? Are the people who write these laws going to be okay with that? Um, you know, and then there are questions like, for example, will the abortion pill be available by mail from an out-of-state producer um, and perhaps prescriber. So um, I think we're about to enter a very uh, uh, turbulent next phase of all this if the court does what we expect, which is to throw out Roe v. Wade, and then all these states try to rush in and implement a series of anti-abortion laws. Jeff Mason, I know you have your eye on the Supreme Court, as we all do. There was a decision this week centering on prisoners' rights and the rights that state prisoners have to contest in federal court, uh, make make the allegation that their their attorneys earlier on in the trial process were unqualified or otherwise deficient, and by a 6-3 margin, um, that, that, that was overturned. Um, what should we make of that decision? And again, sort of what, what do we have to look forward here? You're obviously the, the abortion, uh, greatly anticipated abortion decision is among them, but this is a, a busy few weeks here left for, for the court and in this term. It is a busy few weeks. Um, I think the first takeaway is one that we've you know already been seeing, and that is that the six to three conservative versus liberal uh, majority is is giving the conservative court a, an opportunity to really put its stamp on um, on on things like this. And and the decision that you're referring to is um, the the court ruled that state prisoners do not have a constitutional right to present new evidence in federal court um, if they claim that they were represented poorly represented at trial in in a state court and people who um, I mean the argument that Justice Clarence Thomas who wrote it made is that that would give um, defendants a an incentive to sandbag state courts that's his quote um, the the liberals of course objected to that and said that it was illogical and and the innocence project uh, which works on cases of people who were wrongly convicted says that this is one of the big issues where people get wrongfully convicted it's when they have poor representation the nation's largest protestant denomination has released a database of more than 600 reported sex offenders the database was kept secret for years but made public after a third-party report recently unveiled 20 years of sexual abuse allegations Within the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC's former policy head, Russell Moore, called the report, quote, apocalyptic, end quote. Uh, Naftali, I'll start with you. Just speak to the scope of this investigation. I mentioned it was done by, by a third party. How did it come about? Uh, what did it reveal? And the, the latest uh, chapter in this story, as I said, is, is the release of, of these names. But the, the report itself was quite damning. 
It was, and it has a very a very wide scope. I mean, the it's you know the Southern Baptist Convention has 13 million members. It's the largest Protestant denomination, um, and the finding was not just that leaders you know covered these things up, but they actually attacked and in some cases vilified either people who had survived this abuse or people who tried to raise the issue. Um, you know, the list that you're talking about, the list of several hundred uh, purported abusers. It's not just that they hid it; they claimed that it wasn't even possible to assemble such a list because the convention is so dispersed. It's not a hierarchy in the way that the Catholic Church is. And that turned out, of course, to, to be not true. Um, you know, so now we have not only the Catholic Church, which, of course, has been fighting its own battles in this regard, but also a very large Protestant denomination. And I, I just, you, you know, I think it's particularly striking when organizations that purport to be moral leaders, spiritual leaders, religious leaders, to care about all human beings, when it's found that this kind of thing not just happened, but then was protected in a systemic and systematic way, I think it's particularly striking and and, and damaging in some ways. Anita Kumar, what have we seen in terms of response uh, thus far from uh, members of the Southern Baptist Convention, from leadership as well? We're at a point where uh, there's going to be a leadership decision. New leadership is going to be picked here in the coming days, coming weeks. Uh, What's the reaction been like thus far to to this report and, and the release of this database? Yeah, I think a lot of people had thought it would be bad, but you saw a lot of reporting of of those who said it was even worse than they thought it would be, right? Um, and so I think they're sort of, you know, sort of coming to terms with this. This is this is a, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention had long said that, you know, they were nothing like the Catholic Church, that, they, that they, it, it, there was no comparison. They shouldn't equate the two. And I think there are a lot of people around the country sort of saying, okay, now we really have to take stock of what this says. It is worse than some thought and, and what will happen next. I believe uh, members are gathering pretty soon um, in the coming days and weeks. And I think, uh, you know, this this investigation, this third-party investigation basically came around because members uh, uh, around the country wanted an investigation. And so they're now meeting again a year later uh, to talk about sort of right after this report comes out. So we'll see sort of what what people think should be the, the future and, and what should happen next. In terms of what should happen next, uh, Jeff Mason, 14 million members, the, the number of, of congregants has been in decline uh, over these recent years. Uh, and Naftali, a moment ago, bringing up what we've seen uh, in the Catholic Church, something that the Southern Baptist Convention has taken pains to say is that structurally it's a very different organization than, than the Catholic Church. And so there's this moment when we are learning what happened, uh, seeing this database, and then there's a point where there'll likely be attempts at, at recourse and retribution uh, in, in courts. How, how does that complicate things, the way that this organization is structured? How much is the template that we have from what happened within the Catholic Church going to be applicable here, do you think, Jeff? It's a good question. I, I'm no expert on this, but I, I think that the first answer that comes to mind is I, I don't think that is going to matter to victims. It's not going to matter to the public. The excuse of the structure or of the the bureaucracy is not and is not holding up to the light of day in terms of uh, the fact that that has been used to shield uh, abusers. And we saw that the same in the Catholic Church. I think it's also worth mentioning the, the really important role of journalism in this. The Houston Chronicle investigation uh, was, was one thing that brought light on, uh, on this abuse scandal. Uh, we obviously know about the role of journalism in um, bringing light to some of the abuse in the Catholic Church, and that's important. But it shouldn't have to be that. 
when when structure when structural institutions prevent um, accountability. And I guess to get back to your question, David, I, I think that's the takeaway. Southern Baptist Convention holding its annual meeting uh, starting June 12th in Anaheim, California. Uh, again, that's where that leadership decision uh, will be made. Um, Jeff, turning to you once again, uh, we focused so much on on this mass shooting in Texas this week. Um, it was also a moment to remember what happened two years ago to, to George Floyd in, in, in Minnesota. And we saw some action from the White House this week uh, on police reform. Um, since that tragic killing, uh, the administration has been taking pains to try to get Congress to uh, pass action on police reform, uh, pass legislation to that effect. It hasn't happened, so they've taken this route of, of signing an executive order. Um, what's significant about its timing? What does this executive order do? What doesn't it do, I should say also, that, that legislation would have? Yeah. Well, I, let, me, let me take the timing piece first. Um, President Biden, in his uh, remarks at the White House uh, about this, and this happened to come the day after the, the Texas shooting, said that he hadn't wanted to do an executive order right away because he wanted Congress to act. And ironically, there's actually a parallel between that, the push for executive action on um, police reform and and the push for executive action by uh, gun control activists for for gun control executive action at the White House. I did a story on that this week about pressure on Biden to do more. And the White House's response to that is, look, we want Congress to do something because that will make it legislative, that will make it law, and that will have a, a greater impact. But that, so that's the timing. They've waited, and uh, he ended up signing this executive order uh, this week with members of George Floyd's family and other victims and families of, of police abuse to sort of set some sort of um, margins or, or or structure on on police reform, but it does not go nearly as far as as the legislation would have. Tali, get to to that point if you could. And I'm sure that you've had conversations about this um, among your team at the Post, covering the White House. But uh, I imagine this is a, a source of huge disappointment to the president, the vice president, and uh, the administration as a whole. Um, where where do they go from here, having signed this executive order, when it comes to this issue of of police reform? Well, it is a source of great disappointment, and it was kind of an interesting event, actually, this week at the White House, because on the one hand, it was sort of a triumphant moment where they were saying they're finally doing something to honor the memory of George Floyd. On the other hand, it was very much a moment of admitted failure, where they had wanted to pass a much broader bill through the House, and a bill would have been able to directly affect the 18,000 local police departments in the country, but this one can't. It can only provide incentives for those police departments to do things. Um, you know, But the politics have really shifted since two years ago. I mean, in, in 2020, there was this eruption of social justice, of racial justice protests. President Biden was right with them, identifying with them, speaking on their behalf. In the time since then, there's been a rise in crime, and there's been a, just a, a shift in the landscape more in the direction of increasing police departments, of bolstering police forces, and Biden's own tone has shifted in that regard. Activists are kind of worried that the momentum has been lost. And if you read the text of this executive order itself, it strikes a very careful balance where it talks about what's suffered by black and brown communities, but also talks about how the vast majority of police officers are honorable and try to do the right thing at all times. So I think from the White House perspective, it's the best they could do in this moment, but there's also a feeling of disappointment and to some degree a feeling of failure. Let's end here with uh, Uvalde, and I'll, I'll turn to Anita for, for the last question here. Anita, I mentioned the president and the first lady heading to, to Texas this weekend. What are you going to be listening for uh, as you sort of think about how this story advances? Yeah, I'm going to be listening to see if he says, you know, President Biden, 
you know, does go goes a step further. I, I think we mentioned this earlier, but there are some, you know, activists this week that are saying in the last couple of days that they they want him to be stronger. They want him to get out front and really push Congress more than he is. And of course, the president, the White House saying, look, we're, we're kind of waiting. We're letting we're letting the Senate try to negotiate. Let's give them some room. So I guess I, I want to see, I know how he's going to, mm. you know, embrace victims. We have seen him. He has lost two children of his own, obviously not to gun violence, but we will see him being that consoler in chief. The question really is, does he go further than that? Is he stronger than that in what he wants to get done? Anita Kumar is the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Jeff Mason, White House correspondent for Reuters. Naftali Ben-David is the White House editor at The Washington Post. One A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Chris Cristano is our digital editor. Special thanks to Jen White. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm David Gura in for Jen White, and this is the global edition of the News Roundup. There's lots to get to, including new reports that the U.S. is preparing to step up the kind of weaponry it's offering Ukraine. Ukrainian officials are asking for advanced long-range rocket systems. The Biden administration is leaning towards sending those systems as part of another round of military and security assistance to be be announced as soon as next week. Joining us today, Jennifer Williams. She's the deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Nancy Youssef is a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. And Greg Myrie, my colleague at NPR, is joining us from Ukraine's capital today. Thanks to all of you. And Greg, let me start with you. This week marking three months since Russia invaded Ukraine. How would you characterize the state of war for for both sides? I I think back on a piece you reported a couple of days ago. I think you said on almost every front, Russia has underachieved while Ukraine has overachieved. Yeah, David, that's certainly still true. Um, In addition to that, though, what we see are both sides really digging in. Uh, Neither really appears capable of delivering a decisive blow right now. And so we are seeing these growing signs of a protracted stalemate. Another thing I would add is initially we saw a war launched by Russia on multiple fronts coming in from the north and going after the capital, Kiev, coming in from the east and the south. So there were all these different fronts. The fighting right now is very much focused on the east, the Donbass region, a couple uh, towns in particular the Russians are hitting very, very hard. So the, the war in, in that sense has, has become more focused. Uh, the Russians are gaining some ground, but it's incremental. Uh, it's a very high cost to both sides, and it's hard to see either side uh, making a major breakthrough, the Russians uh, pushing through and, and going after larger cities, or that matter for for the Ukrainians. They've played very good defense, but they they haven't really shown the ability to mount a major offensive on their own. All this sort of suggests the possibility of of heavy fighting, but but a stalemate down the road. Before we talk about what's happening uh, in the east and in the south and in more specific, I want to ask about what's happening in the air uh, over Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has shot down at least 200 Russian fighter jets, and you spoke with Professor Phillips Payson O'Brien, a military expert at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, about how Ukraine's success in the air has, has shifted Russia's strategy. They're staying over the Black Sea, or they're staying in Russia and firing guided missiles. So they simply are not comfortable flying in Ukraine for any extended period of time. And that means they can drop bombs or they can launch missiles, but they can't control the airspace over a battle. 
Greg, this fits squarely in that category of, of what's transpired versus what people forecasted or predicted. I think the expectation was uh, in mid to late February that um, the Ukrainian Air Force was going to be greatly outmanned uh, by Russia. Yeah, absolutely. The The Russian Air Force is much larger. It's much more modern. And, and the expectation was that the Russians would sort of do what the Americans do, which is on day one of the war, take out uh, Ukrainian planes, take out their airfields, their air defense systems. And that just didn't happen. The, the Ukrainians were just very clever, really husbanded their resources, and they've shot down 200 planes. So even though the Ukrainians still have a much smaller air force, they've basically scared the Russians out of their airspace. So the Russian pilots will go up over Russia or over the Black Sea, fire missiles long distance, uh, which means they're not as accurate. Uh, they, the Russians can't hover over a battlefield, which would, would make the Ukrainians much more vulnerable. So the Ukrainians on this front, as on others, uh, have, have made much more with much less. And this, this big advantage that the Russians were expected to have has not materialized. I said we dig into what's happening in the Donbass, and I'll bring in Nancy Youssef to, to help us uh, to dig into this a little bit more. Uh, you had a governor from that area saying yesterday Russian forces continue to advance. Five percent of territory remains in, in Ukraine's hands. How has Russia managed to gain control of these areas and, and sort of what does the state of play look like in, in the eastern part of the country? Well, that war is different than the one we saw in places like Kiev because there's not as many hiding places. It's not urban warfare so much as an artillery war, which is an area where Russia has um, had more of an advantage. We heard from Boris Johnson earlier this week that um, Russia is making slow but palatable progress in the Donbass region. It is a different kind of war than we saw earlier. And so it has led to concerns that this is an area where Russia could make advances. I would note that also this is an area where separatists have been operating Russian-backed separatists since 2014. So it's one that Russia knows better than other parts of the country. And it's also closer to Russia's border. And so its um, logistics are easier to maintain. Its supply lines are shorter than it was from places like Kiev and and parts west uh, of the capital. And so all of those areas make it a different kind of battle than we've seen in other parts of the country. And frankly, one where Russia has more of an advantage than it has in other parts uh, of Ukraine. Jennifer Williams, what do we know about the, the conditions facing Ukrainians who are living uh, in these occupied territories uh, in a place like Donetsk? There, there was a report from the Russian news agency that there are more than 8,000 prisoners of war currently being uh, held in that region. Um, what is everyday life for them like, apropos of what Nancy was just talking about, the, the way that this war is being waged there? Right. So, I mean, in general, it's in many ways difficult to know the actual truth of what's going on, right? Because these are areas that are occupied by the Russian military, and we are not going to be getting a ton of, you know, great information. We take information, that report with a grain of salt, the, the 8,000. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but in general, I mean, you know, we've seen what life under Russian occupation is like for, for these regions, you know, for quite a while, uh, you know, and they're, they're not great, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, you know, there is a lot of um, anger and resentment among, you know, the more kind of pro-Ukrainian Ukrainians, um, toward the Russian military, obviously, you have a lot of discrimination. And then you're going to have also the Russians are trying really hard right now to kind of uh, extend this Russian citizenship, this Russianness to these regions. So they're pushing to kind of fast track 
uh, Russian passports, citizenship documents, things like that for these people to try to show, look, these people are Russians, right? We, We liberated you. We brought you back into the Russian fold rather than portraying themselves as this, you know, military occupying force, which, of course, they are. So you have this kind of mix of the Russians trying to play this game, saying, look, you know, we're here, we're going to protect you, we're protecting Russian speakers, etc., part of the kind of broader justification they've made for this mm. war all along. And yet you're going to have a lot of people, especially the people who were fighting uh, against them uh, in these areas, are going to be facing, you know, potential torture, imprisonment, mm-hmm. potential execution. We don't know, right? We, if they have all of these... Uh, prisoners of war, it's unlikely they're going to be treated particularly well just because we've seen how Russia is handling, you know, committing alleged war crimes in in all the other places. So Mm -hmm. it's unlikely they're going to be, you know, treated under, you know, in accordance with international law and the way you're supposed to handle prisoners of war. So Mm -hmm. in general, it's a pretty grim situation. As we're looking for data, the UN Human Rights Council issuing a report, 4,000 civilians have been killed in Ukraine, but noted the actual number could be significantly higher. Uh, We're talking to foreign policy's Jennifer Williams, NPR's Greg Myrie, and the Wall Street Journal's Nancy Youssef. And uh, Greg, I want to ask you on the the point of war crimes, you were inside a courtroom uh, as we had the first soldier, Russian soldier, 21-year-old soldier, brought in charge uh, in the death of an unarmed civilian. Uh, and it was a moment of high drama transpiring, of course, while this war uh, continues. And there was, in the course of that trial, a pretty remarkable exchange between um, the Ukrainian widow of this 62-year-old man who was killed by this Russian soldier uh, and the soldier himself. Describe what happened and help us understand the importance of this trial happening, as I said, while this war continues, while hostilities, while fighting is still very much underway. Yeah, it's very unusual for war crimes trials to be taking place while a war is actually still going on. But the Ukrainians say this is this is the way we really have to do it. Uh, we don't want to uh, – the evidence is fresh. Witnesses can be located. And th- there was some skepticism. Could the Ukrainians put on a real trial with this young Russian uh, sergeant, uh, 21 years old, uh, and, and the accusation that he shot dead a 62-year-old unarmed man. Uh, he pleaded guilty on the first day. Okay, was that voluntary? Was that coerced? Uh, the next day, um, he was. He appeared in court, as did the widow of the man who was killed, and she was allowed to address him directly and said, how did you feel when you killed my husband? And he explained uh, the situation, you know, his vehicle had broken down. He and some other soldiers then were trying to get out of this this village in northeastern Ukraine. They stole a car, a Volkswagen Passat uh, crammed in there. And as they were driving down the street, they saw this 62-year-old man. He was talking on the phone. They thought he might be revealing their position. So the, sh- the soldiers started yelling at, at this one of their their colleagues, Vadim, to to shoot him. And at first he resisted, but then he said they kept yelling, so he he shot the man. And uh, there were several witnesses, and he told the widow, he said, I I know you probably can't forgive me, but I ask for your forgiveness. Um, He was very contrite. One of his fellow soldiers testified in the case. Uh, The widow heard the gunshots, saw the car go down the street. Another neighbor saw it. All of their stories lined up. Uh, the Ukrainians said they did ballistics tests that matched up the, the shooting. So the, the evidence was actually quite compelling, and these uh, were, the soldiers were captured just a day after the shooting. So this is just one trial. The Ukrainians say there's 11,000 cases uh, they've documented of potential war crimes. The challenge, of course, will be capturing soldiers. But in this case, they, they captured the suspect and uh, put on pretty compelling evidence. 
Well, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger suggested that Ukraine cede territory to Russia to bring a faster end to the war. His comments came at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, and President Vladimir Zelensky was quick to respond to that in a video address. He said, in Davos, for example, Mr. Kissinger has emerged from the deep past and said that part of Ukraine should be given to Russia to avoid the alienation of Russia from Europe. It seems that Mr. Kissinger has 1938 written on the calendar instead of 2022, and he was speaking to an audience not in Davos, but in Munich at that time, end quote. Nancy Youssef, let me have you respond to that, the suggestion there from the 98-year-old former Secretary of State, Mr. Realpolitik, or Dr. Realpolitik, I, I should say. How much is that emblematic of a school of thought here, indicating this might be a way to, to bring a quicker end to this war? Well, I, let me just address sort of his reference to 1938. That yeah. is the Munich Agreement in which Britain, France, and Italy trying to stop Hitler from invading Czechoslovakia give him part of the western side of the border. It was seen as really in a failed act of appeasement. And, of course, um, we know that what happened after. But you ask a great question about what it, what it sort of suggests because I think what we started to see this week was sort of a – a real question across the world about what um, an end state in Ukraine looks like. And I think in one way, um, Kissinger was reflecting those who worry about um, a, a, a too weakened Russia, a too humiliated Russia, the long-term implications of that. If you, if you want to put that on one side of the spectrum, I think on the other side is Eastern Europe, Estonia, Poland, um, especially, who see any kind of engagement or any room for, for Russia to come back as a threat. Um, and then countries like France and Germany, who are worried about the long-term implications of this war, we saw um, Italy's leadership say that the war has to end as soon as possible. And so um, what we're hearing is um, a Europe and a West in particular that is really asking itself, while, it can, while everybody concedes the decisions ultimately up to Ukraine, that we're starting to see a very public debate emerge about how this war ends and and how does it um, not leave Russia in a position to um, launch similar attacks either in Ukraine or against other um, NATO uh, or, excuse me, other allies um, mm-hmm. like Poland and, and Estonia. Jennifer Williams, uh, so much action did take place in the Swiss Alps in Davos at this kind of postponed meeting of the, of the, the World Economic Forum. Uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was there, uh, and she was talking about sanctions. She said that sanctions are draining Russia's war machine. Um, give us an update on how this unprecedented and wide-ranging package of sanctions uh, and punishments on Russia uh, are affecting that country as this war continues. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, I think she's very right um, that, you know, the sanctions are having a massive effect on the Russian ability to, you know, uh, continue to get, you know, uh, restocking, resupplying, things like that through the supply chain, but also being able to do things like feeding their soldiers. Um, Really basic stuff. We're seeing, you know, accusations that Russians have seized, um, you know, grain and wheat uh, caches from Ukraine. There's a lot of concern now that we're seeing, obviously, globally around the, the global food crisis. And so we're definitely seeing that in Russia. However, Russia is still, in its in terms of its economy, is still doing 
relatively well. It, I mean, it, it's definitely been hit, right? Um, but it's not, uh, you know, a failed state. It's not crashed yet. It's still able to obviously um, put up a, a you know, a, a pretty tough fight in the East and in the South. What I think is really important to understand here, though, is that this comment um, from Ursula von der Leyen was also kind of paired with uh, recent comments from Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine, who has complained about the EU and divisions within the EU in terms of trying to provide another kind of you know, raft of sanctions, another big push from the EU. And he's complained, like, how long do we have to wait for you guys to get your act together? You know, he has been very blunt this entire time, saying thank you for what you've done to everyone, to the Americans, to the Europeans. Great. We still need more. This is not stopping. We need more. And so as the fight, you know, as Greg mentioned, as the fight moves into this kind of more grinding stalemate, um, you know, phase of the war, Zelensky is pushing very hard to say, look, don't forget us. You know, just because this this war in this region has been going on for many years, like we're still fighting this war here. And so I think part of these comments from Ursula von der Leyen are trying to kind of show, look, we've done a lot. Like we, we've taken in a lot of refugees, right? They, she had a lot of kind of broader points to make about look how much we've been doing to try and help the Ukrainian war effort. We're, we're going to strengthen our sanctions again. We're going to, you know, sanction against Lukashenko's regime in Belarus next door. So I think a lot of it is is beyond just the actual impact of the sanctions. We're seeing this kind of fight play out where Zelensky is still continuing to call on the Europeans to do more and more and more. And we're seeing, you know, divisions within the EU about how much further they want to go. Greg Myrie in, in Kiev, speak to that, what Jennifer's talking about and the desire on Vladimir Zelensky's part to, uh, yes, be present in conversations about the future of the continent and his country as well, of course, uh, but also his hunger and his his desire to be a part of these multilateral institutions. It was something that Ursula von der Leyen brought up in her speech as well as her, her support for Ukraine's path to becoming an EU member state. Uh, you know, at present, Ukraine doesn't have a clear path forward to joining uh, NATO. Just just explain sort of how much that preoccupies him and that how much that stands to change um, the resonance of what he's saying if 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 Ukraine is 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 made a full member of the European Union. Right. I mean that that is certainly a very popular idea. Uh, became much more popular uh, when the when the Russians invaded again. Uh, so I think that he Ukraine certainly wants to stress that none of that is going to get sorted out in terms of uh, Ukraine joining the European uh, Union until this war is over in NATO. A membership is even further down the road. Now, in, in some ways, it's almost de facto. Uh, Ukraine is getting all these NATO weapons. It's getting NATO training, uh, huge support from NATO. But but formal membership is, has a long way to go. It is striking to me, as someone who, who worked in Moscow in the 90s, um, that uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine were in sort of a same level of, of trying to work their way out of the post-Soviet era at that time. Ukrainians have become so much more uh, Western European uh, or just European, maybe Eastern and or Western European, but very much see their future in Europe where the Russians have just not made that transition in the same way. So regardless of what happens, the, the, the Ukrainians see their, see their future there. Um, the, the question of if it becomes formal through the EU or even potentially NATO down the road, um, I mean, those are decisions that uh, the, the, the leaders in those countries will work out. But if you talk to ordinary Ukrainians, um, they see their future in Europe. 
Nancy Youssef, uh, picking up on something that Greg said a moment ago, how they're kind of almost a de facto member of NATO because of all of the, the military equipment and support they've gotten here. Uh, this week, we did hear on, on Capitol Hill some concerns that the U.S. has uh, more or less run out of Javelin missiles to, to send to Ukraine. Here's, here's the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin with Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. The closet is bare. The United States military has probably dispensed about one-third of its Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. We will never go below our minimum requirement for our our stockpile, so we will always maintain the capability to defend this country and and support our interests. So Nancy, just give us an an update of where this conversation stands on what more the United States could do or might do or will do when it comes to supporting Ukraine with, with military equipment. So there have been several aid packages. The latest one last week passed was $40 billion, a large part of that dedicated to military aid, which is an amazing number. When you think about how much the U.S. has given in the international community, it's billions and billions of dollars. Um, and, and for a point of comparison, the Russian defense budget last year was $66 billion. So it's an enormous amount, enormous amount of arms and weapons going in. And throughout this conflict, we've seen the U.S. sending more advanced weapons, um, CNN reported yesterday about uh, rocket launchers and HIMARS going in, another advanced weapon system. And so what we're seeing is a bigger investment by the international community. The question becomes, can it keep up this pace, which is a very expensive one. And also, the more that you see the U.S. and other countries giving weapons, the more they become um, invested in the outcome of the war. While the U.S. will say the decision is up to Ukraine, um, the the use of those weapons, it, it's the U.S. will say it's up to the Ukrainians also how they use their weapons, but how much discretion does the U.S. have and how far can they take those weapons? If Ukraine were, for example, to get a military advantage and decide to use U.S. procured weapons to um, invade into Russia, would the United States allow that? So the, the more you see this investment, the more complicated potentially the questions become. But in terms of the size and scale, it's enormous. Um, it's a, billions and billions of dollars, remember, in just three months. Sure. Um, t- to the question of the U.S. stockpiles, US, the U.S. wasn't using uh, javelins aggressively in its own sort of military defense. And I think that there has been some attempt at making sure that it doesn't get down to dangerous levels, as the secretary said. However, the cost of replacing a lot of the equipment will likely reach into the billions of dollars. And part of what we've seen invested by Congress is towards that end, um, replenishing weapons. And by the way, in some cases, it could take years mm-hmm. to do so. The world is responding to this week's mass shooting in Texas that left 19 school children and two teachers dead. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern talked about the steps her country took after the mass shooting in Christchurch in 2019. She was on her way to Harvard to receive an honorary degree, give the commencement address. Here she is on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. We are, we are a very pragmatic people. When we saw something like that happen... Everyone said never again. And so then it was incumbent on us as politicians to respond to that. Now, we have legitimate needs for guns in our country for things like pest control and to protect our biodiversity. But you don't need a military-style semi-automatic weapon to do that. Jennifer Williams, uh, what have we seen in terms of global response to what happened earlier this week? What lessons are there, of course, in New Zealand? There, There is nothing equivalent to the Second Amendment. Absolutely. So I think to the first question, you know, we're seeing very much reflected in the global reaction, the re- the reaction that we're also seeing here in the United States, with states, which is, you know, beyond the obvious horror of the tragedy itself, there's almost a, 
a kind of bafflement of how does this keep happening? How come the United States can't change this? And I think what we're seeing is a lot of countries, you know, like New Zealand, like Australia, like the UK, who have done these kind of um, either bans or buybacks, various programs in the wake of serious mass shootings or, or mass casualty events like this. I think they're saying, look, we managed to do it. We don't understand how you guys can't figure it out. I've had these conversations in the past several days with many people who live uh, overseas. I'm from Texas, and so I'm kind of the the one that they ask and say, look, just tell us in like a sentence what is going on. And unfortunately, it's it's not easy to explain in a sentence, right? There are a lot of uh, kind of dynamics at play here. So we're seeing this kind of global just shock that, you know, the United States can do so many things, right? They're able to, you know, do a lot of, you know, major wars, uh, you know, on the global stage, and yet they can't seem to figure out this one problem that keeps happening. So I think there's a lot of frustration beyond just the, the general outpouring of sympathy and horror. We're also seeing, you know, adversaries like China make use of this. They, they do this a lot when there's violence like this in the United States saying, look, you can't even control, you know, you can't even protect your own citizens. You can't even do basic gun control. And yet you want to lecture us on human rights. So I think it also continues to hurt the U.S. in terms of its, you know, global kind of image. It's also not new, though. You know, the world is aware that we have this problem in the United States. This is something that happens, you know, staggeringly frequently. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, this one in particular, this shooting in particular, just because of of all of the details of it, the the young, you know, the ages of the children, et cetera, is really just kind of, and the fact that it comes, you know, it came just, what, 10 days after the Buffalo shooting at the grocery store. So I think this in particular, this kind of buildup is really causing the world and many Americans to go, how is this still happening? Surely we can do something. Nancy Youssef, I want to ask you for an update on Title 42 uh, as well. The Trump administration pandemic response been used since March of 2020 to quickly remove migrants from from the U.S. southern border. It was uh, imposed uh, as COVID was really ticking up. That was the excuse or the motivation behind it. It was set to end this week. It was blocked by a federal judge. Uh, what happened down in in in, uh, in Louisiana? A federal judge in Louisiana, uh, Judge Summerhays. What did he say in, in his decision? So he gave two reasons for his decision. He said that the uh, uh, Biden administration didn't follow the proper procedures and that the CDC uh, didn't adequately consider the financial harm to states along the border by assuming more of the health care costs that come with letting in potentially more COVID um, um, positive migrants into the into the United States. I I think the challenge is that many remember under U.S. immigration law, anyone who sets foot in the United States has the right to apply for asylum. But but Title 42 sort of usurped that in that it was a public health law. And so what we saw was migrants repeatedly being turned away at the border. And the concern is that that the use of Title 42 is a way to attempt in migrants' rights to seek asylum. And more broadly, is it is this ruling that appears to be the beginning of what will likely be a protracted legal battle um, over the president's purview over immigration policy. And so what was supposed to sort of end today and, and some said would lead to an uptick in migrants in, in the United States will now be a months-long legal battle as the Biden administration said it would oppose the decision. I should note uh, also that polling has showed that most of 
more than half of Americans oppose lifting um, Title 42. And so what the Biden administration was pursuing um, was um, against sort of um, popular sentiment. And so I think this went from potentially be an issue that would come up uh, in the run-up to the midterm elections to something that might not be uh, settled until after that. Do we have a sense of what it means for those who are currently uh, at the border? Well, under Title 42, under they can keep coming back over and over and over again. And so we're going to see that continue to happen. But I think it, re- it creates a, a state of uncertainty and people trying over to keep coming in without having a clear sort of legal um, settlement over the status of their cases. We're at the turning point of history. That warning was delivered this week to world leaders, corporate titans, and philanthropists who gathered once again in Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum's annual meetings. Sounding the alarm was its founder and executive chairman, Klaus Schwab. He told CNN's Richard Quest that the global economy is way out of balance. What I want to highlight particularly here is the consequences. We know that if we don't change course, we will have... Hundreds of millions of people falling back into poverty. We have to address it. There's never been a more important time for these talks to be taking place. Yes. um, I mean, it's the most consequential meeting which we ever had in the last 20, uh, 50 years, I would say. Klaus Schwab there, and I'll turn to Greg Myrie here to ask about what was looming over the, the Swiss Alps, uh, what was looming over Davos. A lot of concerns about a potential recession, an economic downturn. This is a, a well-known playground for the wealthy. Um, what's got them worried? And uh, it certainly did have a different flavor than in years past. Yeah, absolutely, David. It's this confluence of events that are that – are, uh putting all these storm clouds on the horizon. Um, obviously, uh, it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are enormous producers of wheat and barley and other agricultural products. Um, if, if they can't produce at the level, if, if Russian uh, exports are blocked, if Ukraine can't get its uh, farm supplies, uh, farm uh, f- harvest out because of the war, this is going to have downstream effects, particularly on developed countries. Uh, food and energy prices were already going up. Uh, the, you know, Europe is trying to, talking about blocking uh, Russian uh, energy imports. So this could uh, further skew uh, energy markets. Uh, fertilizer prices have gone through the roof. The World Bank is estimating that uh, the global growth, which they had pegged at about just over 4% this year, they're now looking at just a little over 3%. So th- this uh, alone uh, shows you how how seriously they're thinking about this. Um, the head of the World Bank in, in the U.S. said uh, it's, it's, it seems like a re- recession is on the horizon. People are talking about uh, possibly end of this year, early next year. And once that psychology sets in, that can have an impact on how uh, businesses act above and beyond the actual uh, reality of, of what might be going on in the global economy. So we have a lot of bad things coming together, and the fear is they will snowball and, and lead the world into a recession. Well, let's stick with inflation and, and food prices in particular. You mentioned the World Bank. It warned that global food prices are on track to spike by more than a fifth this year. Uh, the World Bank saying a hunger crisis affecting the world's most vulnerable countries is well underway. Uh, David Beasley runs the World Food Program. It is absolutely essential that we allow these ports to open because this is not just about Ukraine. This is about the poorest of the poor around the world who are on the brink of starvation as we speak. So I ask President Putin, if you have any heart at all, to please open these ports. 
have any heart at all, David Beasley, asking, Nancy Youssef, I'll turn to you on this point because this was a, an opening for the president of Russia to attempt to negotiate with the West that has iced him out and imposed all of these uh, sanctions. He, he essentially made the overture, we'll end this blockade, we'll allow uh, ships carrying grain and other foodstuffs to, to leave uh, if you relax or do away with, with the sanctions. Unclear, I think, if he was talking about uh, grain from Ukraine or Russia more generally. But um, here, here we have an attempt at negotiation on this issue. And how significant is that? And, and what should we make of the response to it? Well, I think the problem is that Russia has created the circumstances that led to Ukraine not being able to um, leave you, uh, leave the country and now is saying, but look, we're, we're willing to negotiate on it. And so I think that's what makes it so challenging in terms of reaching a negotiation that, that the world community is not going to say to Russia, thank you for coming to our assistance when it was in fact um, you that created this problem. And I think that's the sort of um, diplomatic stalemate that we're at right now. We've seen Russia um, um, use ships to get uh, illegally uh, procured uh, wheat from Ukraine into uh, other countries. They've tried to ship them, for example, to Egypt. Egypt turned those ships away. And what we're seeing across the international community, I'll speak to the Middle East because I know it best, is that you're starting to see um, countries now adjust for uh, a lock of U uh, Ukrainian um, grain being available for the foreseeable future. In Egypt, for example, they're turning more to their own local production. They're turning to countries like India, which they weren't willing to take their grain from before. And so we're starting to see um, an international community that is trying to adjust to a war that it sees um, protracted. And and the question for me becomes, what happens to Ukraine's economy? When we talk about rebuilding Ukraine at some point, we heard this from the EU earlier this week, how do you do that when you have a world economy shifting away from its dependence on Ukraine for for grain? You know, it's, it's, it's affecting the Middle East, as Nancy Youssef says. Jennifer Williams, it's affecting farmers here in, in the United States as well. I imagine this is putting the onus on American farmers to produce more, knowing that there continues to be sizable demand for staples like, like wheat and corn. How's it playing out here in the U.S. domestically? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're seeing this all over the place, especially here in the U.S. You know, the U.S. is a big producer. Um, you know, and I think what we're seeing is everyone's kind of scrambling, as Nancy said, to figure out ways to kind of, um, you know, it, it just uh, adjust for this massive, you know, hit to global food supply. Um, and it's not something that's going to happen overnight, right? You can't, you can't just grow a bunch of wheat in a week. If only, um, right. <laughs> right. I mean, it would be great if we could. But I think what we're also seeing too, which is really um, important to kind of connect the dots here, you know, we're, we're almost talking about these stories as if they're two different stories. So, you know, the international, um, the you know, the World Bank talking about high inflation and those issues and then the, the global food crisis. But those things are also connected, right? So we have the fact that the high inflation is starting to cut into people's spending power. So especially in low-income countries, we're seeing that's going to worsen the food insecurity, right? They're going to have less money to buy the grain. The grain is more scarce. So obviously those prices are going to go up. So it's this kind of, you know, perfect storm where all of these different forces in the economic space, in the political space, geopolitics are all coming together to create a really, really, really grim situation. Um, a World Bank pro projection says that estimated 657 million people live in extreme 
poverty. That's up from 641 million before the pandemic. So when you add in all of these different factors, we're still coming out of the pandemic. We have a lot of low-income countries right now that have really high sovereign debt loads that they're struggling to, you know, to get out from underneath, trying to have these green transitions in their economy. So all of this is coming mm. together to create a really unstable and strange situation in the global economy that's going to hurt a lot of people. Let's turn to Asia. This week started with the president repeating remarks he made last year about the U.S. coming to the defense of Taiwan if it were to be attacked by China. Only this time, uh, those remarks were made in Japan, and they clearly annoyed China uh, once again. Uh, On Thursday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken assured China in a major speech at the George Washington University that the U.S. was not, quote, looking for conflict or a new Cold War. We don't seek to block China from its role as a major power, nor to stop China or any other country for that matter from growing their economy or advancing the interests of their people. But we will defend and strengthen the international law, agreements, principles, and institutions that maintain peace and security, protect the rights of individuals and sovereign nations, and make it possible for all countries, including the United States and China, to coexist and cooperate. Nancy Youssef, in the corridors of power and diplomacy, there are sizable landmark speeches like like this one. It was certainly billed as such from from the State Department, the Secretary of State weighing in on uh, how he sees the relationship between the U.S. and and China going forward. Um, Help us understand the nuance. What did he say? How does it differ from from what his predecessor in the past administration laid out? Sure. Well, let's start with um, Biden's comments in uh, Japan. I think they were significant in that this is actually the third time that when asked whether the, the U.S. would militarily defend Taiwan, he said, yes, that's the commitment we've made. And yet um, the policy, which is um, strategic ambiguity, has become rhetorical ambiguity in that we don't know what that military <laughs> well, defense well looks like. Well said, yeah. <laughs> and we asked at the Pentagon, what does military defense involve? Does it involve weapons, much like we're seeing in Ukraine, or does it involve troops? And the Secretary of Defense declined to answer. And so the question becomes, is the U.S. purposely um, being uh, vague in some way to create uh, uncertainty for China about um, its course towards Taiwan, particularly um, in this environment of Ukraine? It's not quite clear. Um, and, 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 but it, is, um, it has become consistent, if nothing else. Um, so... After um, the president returned from Asia, as you mentioned, Secretary Blinken gives a speech. It was based on a classified report um, conducted uh, trying to outline a strategy, and he, he described it as invest, align, and compete. And what he was suggesting basically is that despite the U.S. focus on the war in Ukraine, that China remains the priority and that it must have a policy in which um, um, it re- recognizes the, the influence that China has across the world. What was interesting is that he really presented it as the world nations around the world must choose between this China-Russia access and a more Western-aligned access. And I think um, that was the most sort of overt sort of call to the to the world community that we're, the U.S. is not trying to destroy China or compete with China in um, in in some ways, but it is looking for um, nations to sort of state their. Uh, their willingness to join a Western alliance or more, be more aligned to Russia and China. I think it really speaks to um, um, we, we might be in a multipolar world, but mm-hmm. one in which is sort of defined along these two, these two camps, if you will. Greg Murray, I want to ask you about uh, some military exercises. China announced on Wednesday conducted drills near Taiwan after President Biden's remarks. And you know, certainly since the start of Russia's incursion in Ukraine, there's been this narrative that China's watching it unfold very closely 
uh, in part because of you know what what could happen or might happen if it were to take uh, action on, in, in in Taiwan. Uh, what are your sources telling you? What are you hearing about um, what they've observed? What they're what they're thinking? What their latest thinking is on that? And um, you know, are, are we at a point where China is weighing that uh, at this point still? Well, it's hard to tell if anything has changed. Certainly in the, in the bigger picture, um, China has taken a more aggressive stance. There is a concern that uh, they might act sooner uh, rather than later. I'm talking over a course of, of coming years that uh, President Xi uh, is, is something he wants to achieve before he, uh, before he leaves office. Now, how is China interpreting what's going on in Ukraine? Um, they may think that they could carry out a much more effective uh, military operation if they were to go that route. They might also uh, be thinking that they're quite surprised at how quickly uh, the U.S. and the rest of the West was able to place some very tough sanctions on Russia that's, that could have long-term terrible consequences for the Russian economy. I think China is a, is a country that has uh, prioritized its economic development, and that's the way they feel they've been able to uh, keep their population uh, reasonably satisfied. And they would be very fearful of, of having an economic turndown. So they may be even looking at this and thinking more of the potential economic consequences if they were to try to, uh, to take military action uh, against Taiwan. So it's obvious it's, it's just absolutely natural to look at the Russia invasion of Ukraine and think, how does that relate to China and Taiwan? Um, I think it's very hard to make a, a clear decision if this has, has changed the Chinese calculus um, in any way. But uh, yeah, I think you need to think about the military part of it, the economic part of it, um, and, and the, the global political part of it. Jennifer Williams, Greg Myrie opening the door for us to walk through there on the, the economic side of this. And um, I wonder how China looks at this point. We've seen growth slowing. Um, we've seen new COVID lockdowns in many major cities. Uh, we saw, interestingly, that, that reports that Airbnb has taken down its listings for housing and experiences in China due to the country's lockdown. What does that say about the state of the economy in that country right now? Absolutely. So there are kind of two pieces to this. The, the Airbnb um, announcement that they were going to be pulling out of China is in part due to this kind of economic downturn we've seen, you know, very much related to COVID, right? We've China has this zero COVID strategy. They've aggressively pursued, you know, instituting massive, full-scale, very strict lockdowns on entire cities, including Shanghai. Um, you know, anytime there the cases even, you know, get into the dozens. So that's obviously having a huge impact. Airbnb itself also never really did a great business in China for a whole lot of reasons, a lot of it having to do with some regulations around what um, hotels and, and um, places like that have to do in terms of foreigners and ID requirements. It's kind of complicated. Airbnb didn't handle that particularly well. But more generally, you know, we, we've seen uh, just this week that, you know, China's premier came up and issued this kind of big, disturbing mm -hmm. economic warning saying that, you know, <laughs> things are not going very well. It was pretty grim. Um, it, it was a pretty, uh, in many ways, stunning kind of admission um, that the Chinese econ economy is not doing super well right mm -hmm. now. And so I think, you know, going back to Greg's, you know, very important point is that if I'm the Chinese leadership, which, spoiler alert, I'm not, to be fair, but uh, you know, I don't know that I can look and say, okay, you know, I'm, we're struggling with the economy. We're still dealing with massive lockdowns, you know, issues with you know, people getting food every time we do lockdowns, things like that. I don't know if I look at that and go, maybe now is the time to start a massive war and invade Taiwan. 
But again, who knows? <laughs> That's Jennifer Williams of Foreign Policy. Also joining us, Nancy Youssef of The Wall Street Journal, Greg Myrie of NPR. Big week uh, in Asia as the president wrapped up that trip there, of course. Uh, Australia uh, seeing a new prime minister as well, Anthony uh, Albanese being sworn in uh, shortly after he was sworn in, going to meet with uh, President Biden uh, at the Quad International Summit in Tokyo, which we were talking about just a moment ago. A busy week, uh, as always, and I'm grateful to everyone for helping us wrap it up. Jennifer Williams, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy, host of Negotiators Podcast. Greg Myrie, my colleague at NPR, joining us from the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. He covers national security and intelligence. Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. My thanks to all of you. One eight's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gouret. This is 1A.